Hello and welcome to Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, and thank you for joining us for another episode. This week, I'll be talking to Paul Karsten, a correspondent for Reuters News Agency in Abuja, the capital of Nigeria. Paul is one of my dearest friends in journalism and would go on to become one of my co-workers. For about two years in Beijing, I sat at a desk that was joined to his. He's now been in Nigeria for about two years, and we'll find out what that's been like after first exploring how exactly he got there. Again, here's Paul Karsten. Thanks for agreeing to do this. Yeah, I mean, and I, I told you, but obviously I get the worst deal here because you've at least practiced at this. Yeah, and you'll get the least exposure, but you'll be like the hipster guest, the, the guest who was on before it was cool. Uh, I don't think that's very reassuring, but okay. <laughs> I guess to kick things off, if memory serves, we met at a party in Beijing in 2013 before we worked together. Yeah, that was exactly it. When, when Beijing, when was, Beijing still cool. was still cool. Exactly. I believe I spoke about hip-hop at length and then demanded that we go get cigarettes because no one else at the party smoked. And so we kind of disliked everyone else a little bit for that reason. Yeah, it was on a rooftop, which was definitely not a legal place to be. But yeah, I remember it more or less just like that. You were this marmy British guy in glasses and a V-neck talking big game about rap and then, uh, yeah, you, me, and uh, my roommate went to go get cigarettes. All right. I'm not sure Phoenix are a big part of my clothing repertoire. But yeah, exactly, exactly. And I was probably looking for cigarettes because uh, I, I'm pretty sure I wasn't drinking them. But uh, that's neither here nor there. No. I, I mean, I don't know how much you want to get into that. But no, you weren't drinking. Anyway, uh, so we go way back. So where are you from? Uh, I am from Yorkshire in the north of the UK. I was uh, born in a city called Bradford and grew up there for like 10 years or so. And then we moved to another city in the north, in, in Yorkshire called York, uh, hence Yorkshire. Anyway, and that was kind of where I spent 10, 11 years old to 18 before I went to And w what was that like? Was it more rural or was it an actual city or? Yorkshire's quite famous for its countryside, but no, they're both cities, small cities, ultimately. Bradford was a bit of a hole. I really loved it as a kid. There was kind of me and my group of friends would kind of tear around the streets and, you know, play all these games and stuff and occasionally break windows playing cricket or football or something, which I guess we use soccer. But Bradford was like a not doing very well kind of post-industrial city. And it was definitely kind of on the slide in the 90s. And then we moved to York, and York was very different from Bradford. York was not very diverse. It was very middle class, lots of old kind of retirees and stuff. Very kind of pleasant and quaint, nice. And I kind of always found it very, very boring. So your parents kind of upgraded in their minds, I assume, by moving to York. Yeah, and I think in terms of like quality of life for me and my sisters, it was probably an upgrade as well, right? We. We're probably on a better path living there in that city than we were in Bradford. Not to say like anything's definite, but yeah, they upgraded. And what did your folks do? They're both academics. Uh, my father works in uh, transport safety and studies that. So things like the effects of alcohol or sleep or classical music on driving, pushing for things like the, the beep that you hear when your car gets <laughs> too close to a wall or curb as it reverses. Uh, and my mom, she kind of worked in teaching interpreting, uh, professional interpreting, like high level, you know, stuff like summit level stuff that you would find at the UN and EU and that kind of thing, or Trump Kim, for example. But she did it as uh, an academic? Yeah, we'll just have, you know, you have both papers and research and everything, and then you also have teaching, right? You, you For most like high-level interpreters, you need a, a like academic qualification to do it. I guess coming out of that, how, how did you get interested in journalism in the first place? Um, I was kind of interested in journalism when I was like, you know, in my teens. You know, I the typical stuff. I read some Hunter S. Thompson and I was in love with it, and uh, I thought, oh, I'd really love to do that. I'd love, you know, not realizing, of course, that you can't really do that. Um, not professionally. Not, not in a couple decades, probably. Yeah, precisely. And also just I think the industry's changed a lot. Then I went to university where I studied uh, Chinese studies. And the newspapers there, the student newspapers in the UK, I felt kind of sucked. 
They were very tabloidy. Uh, they were about rumors and kind of ludicrous, you know, normal tabloid stuff, sex and drugs and that stuff. And I was just totally turned off by it. There wasn't any serious what? Wait, 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 wait. Like, at tell. Oxford, there is no serious student journalism. I felt that way. I mean, people there and people who worked in it would probably disagree. But the quality of the newspapers was pretty cracked, to be fair. I'm guessing this isn't like a family-friendly podcast no, i can no, swear right or you can freedom of speech all the way okay cool uh so yeah no they were they were shit um there's just you know like doing stories about like kind of which wealthy student was dating which wealthy student or had been caught within another wealthy student's bedroom or gone drunk and or you know all this bullshit it's hilarious um, though so i didn't do that ah, it's, it's it's i don't know yeah maybe uh, but it might have been hilarious, but I didn't want to kind of like engage with it right, at all. Right. And so then I kind of got out of uni. So wait, you you and, to that point you know, had not practiced journalism at all. No, just kind of read and appreciated journalistic type stuff. Yeah, interesting. Did you like school, like as a high schooler in a, in college? Uh, you it's school school? No, I hated it. I was I was you know this is going to sound very arrogant, but I was very bored. Okay, so like in my senior year, I basically skipped three months of it without really telling my parents because uh, I just really loved school. I turned up to the occasional class where I liked the teacher or something, um, and I basically almost got expelled. So that's kind of a but I was a good student and I did fine in my like end of year exams and everything. So, and I think that's kind of why they didn't get rid of me because they felt that I was going to do pretty well. And so that's good for them. It's a good look. Because you just have to do well on the tests and you'll get in. Well, no, really for the school, they do need you to turn up as well. But uh, they basically, they found out, well, they they realized that my parents didn't know. So they contacted my parents directly to say I'd been missing months of school. And then my parents found out and they had like hauled me in and basically we came to an agreement that if I agreed to turn up to every single class unless I had like a really solid, like I, I had to be sick or something uh, to not attend then otherwise I was in shit and I could have been expelled then. They wouldn't like punish huh. me really. I think I even signed a contract. But yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. And then, and so, but in Britain, like the UK, is is like the rest of the world, not like the U.S. You go into university, college, I guess, as we call it, and uh, you basically have to know what you want to do from like day one, from like when you apply. So you already yeah, yeah, had to yeah. know you wanted to study yeah, Chinese, so, is that right? Well, yeah, I mean, again, because I was very arrogant, I asked around, I was like, because I, you know, so, I was bored at school, I asked around, and I was like, what's the most challenging thing I can do? Uh, I knew I needed to be engaged, uh, but otherwise I was just going to probably not make the university what I should. So I asked, went around and asked what the most difficult thing I could do was, and a bunch of people said Chinese, and I was like, well, fuck it, okay, I'll apply to study Chinese at all these universities. Right. And so, I mean, what, so you were spending your time reading what, like Buddhist scripture and stuff? Or? Um, yeah, actually, we did a lot of classical Chinese. Uh, we did modern Chinese literature. We did academic books about China. You know, this course seemed to really have been based more on like classics, studying Latin and ancient Greek than on like doing a modern language course. So it was more similar to studying Latin or ancient Greek than it was to studying, uh, you know, French or Spanish or whatever. That's pretty crazy. So it was really weird. Yeah, I think they've changed the course now. Maybe realized quite how old fashioned it was. But, uh, you know, I really liked classical Chinese. I guess uh, we've got the journalism thing and we've got the China thing going on. Which one happens first? Do you get into journalism or when do you first go to China? Uh, I first went to China as part of my studies in 2009, I think. For how long? Uh, It was only for like four or five months. Okay. But when that first time you went, were you like, China, this is where it's at. This is where I got to go. Or what was its impression on you? I don't know. It's hard to say what its impression on me was. It was... I felt it was cool. I felt it was, uh, it, I just like new places and exploring them. And it's really hard for me to summarize what like impression China had on me when I arrived. 
I just liked it, I think. I liked the chaos. I liked the hubbub, the energy. I was living up in a student area near the university we were at, which I really don't think that area was the most representative of even the city, let alone the rest of the country. This was in Beijing? Yeah, 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 in Beijing, the kind of Wudalko area. Yeah, I mean, I guess when I first moved to China, I was kind of, like, blown away. But I was also coming from, like... Wisconsin to like one year in a suburb of Chicago and not really having been abroad that much and then just going like straight into it. But I guess I would say I can't really place my finger on what really attracted me so much to it. It was more just the chaos and how fast everything seemed to move, which appealed to me and like just yeah how different it was so there was like infinity things to learn it seemed like i don't know there's still like a feeling i get when i think back to it but it is very hard to put into words and that did make me think oh this is where it's at this is where i gotta come back and try to be a journalist yeah i mean maybe for me it was more of like a yearning right because i saw that there was this you know, continent-sized country, basically. I don't know if that's the most accurate description. That's how it feels, right? Yeah. A continent-sized country, and you just, once you kind of set foot there, you realize how little you know about it and about everything around you. And so it's this kind of yearning and this kind of desire to try and find out more about it, learn more about it, and kind of go down that path. I ultimately, like, well, that kind of plan got derailed because I ended up getting quite depressed when I was there. Um, but Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I just ended up, I became, like, almost totally nocturnal. I would just watch a shitload of pirated TV and <laughs> movies and uh, play video games and, you know, drink and smoke too much. And, yeah. I mean, like, the first month or so I was there, it was fine. Uh, maybe second month as well it was also good. But by the third and fourth, something happened. I don't really know what. Um, but I just, yeah, became incredibly down. Yeah. I mean, I, I do remember it being a, a big party and partying a lot and that was part of the appeal. But I mean, that was kind of when I was in the study abroad program cause I was studying there for a year in Nanjing and then I moved cities to Beijing and then I didn't really know as many people and then kind of the party was a little bit over. Um, I guess it was the Olympics, but like just not knowing people. I do remember like feeling this urge and spending a lot of time like inside playing solitaire, watching garbage TV in the background, drinking beer and just kind of like hiding. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So you finish up that program, you go back to college you graduate. Yeah, before I graduated, I was like, oh, maybe I should try and apply to do what everyone else is doing, which is like lawyer, banker, something, whatever. And I like half-heartedly tried to fill in a couple of applications, few applications. I could never really finish them because it was always like, why do you want to do this job in one of the boxes, right? And I could never actually fill that bit in. So I just finished, graduated. And then I thought that I could, you know, even though I didn't have any journalism experience, I did maybe want to give it a shot. And so I kind of, I'd applied for a couple of master's programs in London, but I told my parents, I kind of went to them and I was like, look, either I'm going to rack up like thousands or tens of thousands of pounds more of student debt and just debt in general doing this master's, even if it's just for a year. A master's in what? Oh, I, can't, I think I applied for like a master's in Russian, a master's in Korean. It was something at like uh, SOAS, School of Oriental and African Studies, and one at like one of the London colleges. I can't mm. remember which. But I, I, I told my parents that I, I can do that, or they could give me like, I think it was 80 quid a week, which was... At the time, probably $120, $130 a week. And I was like, I'm just going to go live in London, first with my cousins for a bit, and then like just sleep on my friends' floors and sofas and spare beds if they have them, which no one did because no one has a spare bedroom in London, yeah. at least not when you've just left university. And that was basically it. So then like, I went down, I found some like website run by a journalist who used to write for the Rights of the Guardian, Isabel Hilton, and she has this website, China Dialogue, which does environmental news about China. And it was perfect because I just done Chinese. I didn't need any journalism experience to be an intern there. Sure. Then, you know, you work there, you maybe get a couple of things published, or like little stupid articles published. And then I applied for work experience. And work experience is just like a week or two of unpaid work at a newspaper, just to like begin to flesh out your CV a bit. And I did that at the Independent on Sunday, the Sunday Independent, which I'm not sure if that's really going properly anymore or not. I should probably know. Yeah, let's say it. Oh, fuck, I don't know. I was going to look it up. I don't want to rattle the keyboards. Anyway, so they, for some reason, they let me do it, even though all I'd done was work at this stupid website, which was a good website, I should say, but it's not like very high profile. And it's definitely not an international newspaper. Right. 
And then once you kind of have your foot in the door there, once you've done one work experience kind of thing at this, these newspapers, national level, it's then much easier to get work experience at others. And then like, so I did a couple of national magazines for, um, for a month each. And these are just a couple of weeks here or, or like a month here, a month there. Yeah. Okay. And a few more national newspapers. And by that point, my friend Claire had uh, gone onto the Reuters training scheme, journalism training program. She was like, telling me about it and apparently they really love Chinese speakers uh, along with a few other languages as well and so I applied and, and I applied for other schemes like you know proper schemes which are like entry level jobs into news organizations so it was like a BBC one that turned me down I think an FT one that I didn't get a Daily Telegraph one that I didn't get you know the list goes on uh-huh. yeah only like seven eight nine months after I graduated I applied I'd gone on to the Reuters one so was there any was there ever any point where you're like, maybe this isn't going to work out? Maybe I'm not going to make it? Yeah, I mean, probably like I must have thought that a lot because, I mean, I was basically all the money I had, which wasn't very much because, I mean, just getting around London for transport was already almost the majority of the money, the stipend that my parents were being very nice and giving me. You know, which, and I was and I was already very privileged to get that, right? But they were giving me a stipend and I was using half the money for transport and the rest of the money I was using for like to go down to the pub with the journalists from the places I was working at afterwards to try and chat them up into like maybe giving me a job or something. But anyway, yeah, so I was spending all my money on shit like that. I was barely eating. I was, I remember I was actually working quite hard as well. And like I was leaving those newsrooms late when I was like, when I was lucky enough to get time at them. It's quite funny because it was all unpaid and, you know, they're just getting free labor, right? (laughs) Looking back on it. Right. I wasn't prepared to quit. I remember. I don't think I ever felt like I was ready to quit, but I definitely got down with all the rejections and everything. And I just remember that surge of kind of like joy. I was working, doing like a a week or two at the Daily Telegraph when I got the kind of email or call from the kind of training, hiring guys at Reuters being like, yeah, you've got onto the scheme. It kind of felt like I've made it. Right. Like you're a big break or something. Yeah. I mean, and it is a big break, right? Because I remember I'd applied for one job at some like this like real estate magazine and I knew I didn't want to do it and I would hate doing it, but I just wanted like my foot on the ladder. Oh man. Yeah. I applied for some ridiculous stuff like newsletters, <laughs> like Dow Jones used to run newsletters and I was like really selling myself to be on a private equity newsletter or like <laughs> de- there was a defense of super niche, like defense industry. <laughs> publication i tried for like just crazy stuff that if i had gotten i I feel like i probably would have actually screwed myself over in the end yeah precisely precisely i do feel that i think i even knew that at the time i was just trying to sell myself on this idea so like when i got hired by reuters and it was like oh and we're hiring you to be in the asia program it means i immediately become a foreign correspondent like in some sense right right yeah and it's, it's just like, you know, some people have been telling me, I emailed some China foreign correspondents and was like, and they were like, oh, it can take years. Sometimes you have to start at a local newspaper, then get onto a national newspaper. And then after you've worked there for long enough, they'll send you off on like a cushy foreign correspondence gig, all of which I have strong issues with. And I'm glad that I didn't take that route. Yeah, it would have been a long slog to get out of the country. But not... Not only that, but like, I mean, yes, foreign correspondents can have a nice life, but it's like, it's not some reward for work done in like your home base or something like, you know, these are proper jobs and there's a lot of responsibility that goes with them. And someone, you know, working in London or Manchester or something, there's a lot of stuff that they won't have to deal with that one can deal with as a foreign correspondent. So was this just going to China could get your foot in the door or you were also like chomping to get out of England and go to another country. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I foresaw Brexit seven years <laughs> early. No, um, <laughs> I I knew I wanted to go and live overseas, definitely. And I, I always, like, even when I was, like, quite young, I knew that, I think. Uh, well, I, I got hired by Reuters, and so they tried to get me a visa for China because that's the one that made the most sense during my kind of nine-month training program. And you... 
you wanted to go there despite your experience in Beijing the first time sounding, eh, okay, not great. I don't think that my, like, depression in Beijing was ever anything to do with China itself. And you knew that the whole time, so, okay. Yeah, 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 precisely. So I was ready to go. So, like, you know, Richard hires me and everything, and we're supplying in the visa applications, and then, uh, and then China rejected me <laughs> for my visa. <laughs> Did they give you a reason why? So, uh, it wasn't exactly clear why, because I think they said that you had to be 25 to get any kind of work visa, including a journalism visa in China, right. which I believe is true. But then nine months down the line, after I'd finished my training in Thailand, I still wasn't 25, but they gave me the visa. So, it was a bit weird. Gotcha. So, Thailand, how long were you there for? Nine months. Well, basically, give or take a few months because of like going to Singapore, which is the Reuters hub for training, blah, blah, blah. Sure. And so what were you doing in Thailand? What was that like? Uh, it was very disorganized. I don't think we knew what to do with me because it was a fairly small bureau. They, um, this wasn't a time when there was a lot of news coming out of Thailand. You know, there weren't coups. There wasn't a hunter. There weren't riots on the streets or anything like there'd been a few years before. So really, it was actually quite calm. And uh, a lot of what I was doing was just kind of taking stories from our reporters in uh, places like Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, and just kind of rewriting them a little bit, sending them on to the editors. But also I did try and do my own reporting, but I was kind of silvery green. And I, I knew I wanted to chase stuff and I would get distracted easily and chase lots of things I thought could be stories. But I was not really, like, getting them done as often as I would have liked. Well, I did do a couple I thought were good. Do any specific stories that you finished stand out to you from that time? I mean, they're not really that important now. But for me at the time, I was quite proud of one about rice farming in Thailand and how it was being, becoming highly politicized because the government was basically subsidizing the farmers as, and it was seen as kind of a populist tool to win them over. And it was working. But it was uh, very expensive. So then you get back to the mainland. You moved to Beijing. And uh, did you go straight into a beat job? Or how did you end up in Beijing doing what you were doing? I just was basically told to go to Beijing and take up the tech beat. I, I was kind of told that the tech beat would kind of be all the censorship and, you know, milit military kind of defense industry stuff in China, you know, hacking and how the People's Liberation Army is involved in that. Uh, but then I kind of showed up and it quickly became apparent that I'd be covering companies, uh, so big Chinese tech companies like Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, as well as like a bit of Huawei and ZTE and the foreign companies that worked in China, like Apple, Microsoft, Google, Samsung, etc. So what was like the day-to-day -day at that job like? Uh, well, the first year it was a lot because... I think there were meant to be like two or three tech correspondents uh, that Reuters had for China. That was me. So the volume of, you know, and Reuters, Reuters being a newswire, right? We, and a business newswire as well, we have to write up a lot of stuff um, that, you know, if we think it could affect the companies or share prices or anything, then it basically is written. And so there were days where I was writing multiple stories about multiple companies, and those days would be 10, 12, 14 hours long regularly. And that kind of continued for a year. So yeah, but at the same time, I'm kind of one of those people where the harder I work, the more I kind of, I can't just like, I don't just go home and collapse. I need to kind of let off steam. And so it was like working quite hard and then going out, hanging out with friends. So I was like very, very, very busy in both senses. Do any particular, I, I don't want to dwell too much on it because I want to, you know, spend some time talking about Nigeria where you are now. But do any particular anecdotes uh, stick out from that time? Anything that particularly left an impression, whether it's a story or just something that's telling about the job there? The weirdest one is actually probably this. So China organizes this, this like thing that he calls a world like internet conference, right? The Wujian World Internet Conference or something. I can't remember the exact name of it. It's in this town. It's kind of very touristy, picturesque, like model town, like Potemkin kind of 
thing. Wuzhen, it has all these little canals and bridges and fake archaic kind of looking shops and hotels and all this shit. So, you know, all the journalists stay there, all the delegates stay there, everyone stays in this town and everyone gathers in the hall, halls for the big meetings and everything. And like, there are ridiculously powerful people there. I think the second or third year it was held, Xi Jinping came. Uh, well, obviously, like Jack Ma is there. Can't remember if Facebook, like Mark Zuckerberg came, but Facebook definitely had reps. Apple had reps. Uh, you had Jack Ma from Alibaba, like I said. I think you had Pony Ma from Tencent. The list kind of goes on. So it's like, you know, very high political people as well as as well as people, folk involved in the internet world and tech world. But the security was ridiculous. There were kind of tons of beefy looking guys with buzz cuts trying to pretend to be tourists while holding cameras and taking pictures of certain people. <laughs> and the thing that really stood out to me, and I think everyone has their own little story about this, a lot of people who went... Um, the thing that stood out to me was that when I got to my room, I was looking around. It was just weird, right? Something, maybe I was being paranoid. Something felt wrong. But, you know, like you're a journalist in China, you know what the risks are. And so I started kind of poking around the room and there was this big mirror hanging on the wall. And so I kind of like peeked around the back, pulled it to the side a bit. And there were like two or three wires running into the back of it. And <laughs> there was no light on the mirror. There was nothing electronic about it. But it had these like three wires running into the back of it. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, okay, interesting. And uh, I think I just like put it back and, you know, I didn't do anything with it. You know, made sure to be a bit extra naked in front of it just to freak them out or something. But <laughs> <laughs> Of course. Yeah, it's one of those moments. I mean, the, the thing about the censorship in, in China is it can either be funny or it can be very unfunny. I find, and uh, that can really depend on your mood and where it's done. Like if you find that your home has been messed with or something, then it's not very amusing. But when it's something like that, you can kind of at least mentally, internally joke about it a little bit. It's one thing when you're a foreigner too and can leave, but if you're a Chinese citizen, it can get a little bit scarier in a hurry. But that, that applies to lots of countries as well, I would say, not just China. Yeah, that's true. That's true. For I sure. was going to say, so that's one of the, you know, you often see and hear people complaining about foreign correspondents and why can't you hire a local to do the job, etc., etc. One of the very legitimate reasons for hiring someone not from the country to work there is that there is an element of safety to it that local people might not have. And in China, for example, like that very much the case and in a lot of other places too well, i'm not saying that there shouldn't be more diversity but like but just in general foreign correspondence right there is a, a reason a good reason for them to exist in that sense right definitely the worst case scenario usually is you just get kicked out of the country versus you know potential jail time or jail time or death other harsher penalties death, yeah exactly yeah uh can you explain a little bit about how you got from china to nigeria um, yeah, so what I did was I got a ticket on uh, Egypt Air, and I flew from Beijing to Cairo, which is a terrible airport, Cairo airport, and then I waited around there, and there was just a Chinese dude smoking inside the terminal, and then I got a plane from Cairo to Abuja. <laughs> very literal, very literal. Thank you. So, uh, but like, how did you get from doing the job in China, because you were pretty unhappy towards the end of your time? Um, working on the tech beat in Beijing. Yeah, I mean, towards the beginning, middle and end. Yeah. How did you, uh, you know, get the gig in Nigeria? So the things I liked about China were kind of what I describe as kind of the roughness around the edges. And China is a very chaotic and messy place, but a lot of that is under the surface. And I figured I would like to be somewhere where that was a bit more on the surface. So I kind of drew up a list of uh, places where I could go within Reuters. So I was kind of still kind of focused on moving within Reuters at that point. I think because I realized it would be very hard to move countries and organizations. It's, it's a hard sell, especially if you're going from covering like corporate news to general news in another country where you have no experience for another news organization. It's a big leap. Right, sure. So I was like within Reuters and I basically drew up a list and Reuters is very big on like, you know, you need to speak the lingua franca really, or if it's kind of, you know, some countries you don't need to, um, but those are fewer, more like Southeast Asian countries. I drew up a list and the list was basically like Kenya, Nigeria, I couldn't do the rest of West Africa because it's francophone, didn't want to do Southern Africa because it was too kind of financially driven, economically driven, same for India, it's a very kind of finance econ 
story for Reuters. So yeah, Kenya, Nigeria, Myanmar, and I think Afghanistan and Pakistan as well were on my list. And the first one that came up for internally was Myanmar, which I applied for, but I didn't get that, obviously. And then the next one to come up was Nigeria. And then I didn't get that either. But then I think I was at a tiki bar in Beijing. I think I was quite quite inebriated and I got a phone call from the uh, Africa Bureau chief telling me that the first person had turned down the job and that I was actually the second choice and you know would I be interested at which point I was immediately like fuck yes and that was kind of that in that respect so that's I think that came with I had some like good people who went to bat for me in Asia who like knew me and not just my work but kind of what kind of drove me and so that helps a lot some of us, I'm not sure I know who all those people are, but I know a couple. So yeah, that was really cool. Because I, I built up, uh, I think, a bit of respect within the region, at least, for because my job had been quite tough. So wait, how, how does that process go just for people who are outside of Reuters? What is, what, what, how exactly? You, you apply for something and you don't get it. Is it ba- It's basically like applying for any job, just within the same company? Yeah, yeah, basically, as far as I can tell. Yeah, someone sends you a message telling you that you've been a, a complete disappointment, that you've let everyone down, that uh, you'll be called before a commission of uh, human resources employees, and you basically have to you know, give them a big mea culpa about why you failed to apply for the job. Probably. But you you go through an interview process with, uh, you know, you've got to do an interview and submit an application and all that sort of stuff. And presumably, you know, you're also competing with other people who are experienced at Reuters, too. Yeah. I mean, you're competing with both internal and external candidates. I mean, I assume if, if external candidates apply. But as far as I know, every single job is advertised externally. And so when you're putting your name in, you're doing that and you're just competing with everyone. It's just a normal job application process. I assume it is anyway. Gotcha, yeah. Okay. And so you take an indirect flight to Nigeria. We won't get too much into logistics, but uh, how long have you been there now? Uh, two years and four months. Okay. And and so you're in Abuja, the capital, and what's that like? It was kind of built in the late 20th century. It's very artificial. It's not at all like the rest of Nigeria. It's lots of kind of nice roads within the center, of course, lots of nice roads, lots of big, big houses built uh, somehow. Definitely not with public money. But it's also kind of like ugly, right? Because it's like 1970s architecture. Uh, 1980s architecture. Um, it's a very strange place. It's everywhere's got security guards and uh, razor wire slash barbed wire. There isn't much kind of like you can't walk many places. Everyone drives, so it's a bit like it's a cultural graveyard. I call it. It's sterile in that respect. But uh, in terms of work, it's really interesting because this is where government is. This is where a lot of the kind of uh, it's where the security forces are based. It's where the embassies are it's where the ngos are based rights activists so kind of when it comes to the work side of it it's a fascinating place okay so what what's a normal day like then in abuja for you so you know i work from home so i'd wake up make a big pot of coffee or if i'm lucky get one made for me by my girlfriend and some days like you know there are days where you're doing more research stuff and stuff that you can really only do from your desk which is a shame but a good day you'll have a few meetings at least on a great day you'll have like five meetings or something running all throat from the morning through to the evening and you know those can be people from all of the groups i mentioned above or others as well uh, depending on what the story is to me that's really what the kind of heart and soul of what I'm doing here is is meeting people and talking to them and trying to build trust with them. Let's uh, let's maybe get into a specific story. Can you um, tell me about a story you did recently that you're proud of and kind of walk me through how you came up with the idea and how you executed it? So the story I did recently was about this. Uh, it was an attack on. You know, Nigeria has states, and each state has a governor. And the states in the northeast, uh, particularly Borno State, are, is, they're the ones affected by Boko Haram and Islamic State, West Africa province, which is a, which used to be part of Boko Haram and split off and is now powerful. So the governor of Borno State, in the run-up to the elections, he had this uh, convoy that was driving around the state 
and and I don't particularly know why he had this convoy driving around a state in the middle of a conflict, but he did, and it came under attack. And uh, there was some statement came out that people were killed, and then kind of the people I knew who follow the Northeast, and because I, I knew them because I'd already done a bunch of stories on it. And that's one of the best ways to build stories is to keep writing about something. And kind of, that's a good way to build up context. So, because if, if you do something that you're proud of, there's a chance that other people will see it and they'll respect it too. And they'll get in touch with you. And so anyway, like some of these people started messaging me and telling me that, you know, the public statement, the public information about this attack was not uh, reflective at all of the, the true death toll. So basically with, by using my contacts up there I succeeded in kind of building this picture and recreating what had actually happened in this fairly horrific attack and how it hadn't actually been three people that died, but more like 70 or 80 people were killed and 100, maybe even 200 people were taken hostage by Islamic State in the process. And, you know, the, the governor, while driving his convoy around the northeast of the state, Borno, the army and the security forces had warned him not to do it, and especially not to do it in the evening, just before he left from town A to go to town B, they had said, don't do this, it's a bad idea, but he insisted. And that's when the attack happened. It was really gruesome stuff, but I was happy with it because it did what I was talking about earlier, which, you know, it contradicted a public narrative, which was way off, way off um, in terms of the facts. It was a very kind of, like, if the story kind of starts, it leads in with a, a person, a survivor, uh, who we managed to speak to, you know, and, and as well as amongst a few other survivors who had all had their own harrowing tales. Um, and I, I very much like like kind of human human stories, stories driven by people. I, I think that's a good way to hook people with empathy. A lot of these sources on that were obviously they're quite sensitive, and so it, if they're like you know some of them are people who work in the security services or people who work in other security organisations. Some of them were survivors. Uh, some of them are in politics, some of them are intelligence officials, you know. So it, kind of a broad array of people to, who came together to flesh out this event. Sure, sure. I, I was just going to say, I remember reading that piece and the really grisly description uh, that maybe even you led the piece off on of a guy like lying and pretending to be dead to avoid being killed. That was from one particular survivor who pretended to be dead and laid it kind of in the bushes, in the blood, pooling from his colleague's corpse to survive. And he overheard beheadings and everything, other people who were captured. That kind of sourcing, you know, it's all about networks and building up trust. And again, it goes back to the fact that if, if you do stories that people recognize, sometimes the right people will reach out to you and say, some, some of them are kind enough to say, you know, I'm going to, I'm happy to make myself available to you and I can put you in touch with so-and-so. And that was kind of one of those instances where I was talking with this person and they said, well, I can, I can do that. There's this one guy uh, and, this, and he was part of the whole thing. But, you know, the, these people do it at extreme risk to themselves as well. The Nigerian government, the Nigerian military are not forgiving. So I, I don't want to go into too much detail about the kinds of people I'm speaking to always, but uh, this is often a, a great deal of personal risk. We, we didn't really first establish like exactly how dangerous it is, though. Kidnapping is fairly common. Attacks from Boko Haram are fairly common in certain regions. Those would be the big risks, I assume. It can be yeah, very dangerous in pull-out parts, I think. Uh, one of the biggest things right now is just you can't drive around the country that easily, not only because the roads are so bad, because there are so many kind of roadside ambushes, kidnappings, that kind of thing. You speak I, When I speak to people who've been here in the years before I was here, there was a lot more mobility. And it just means that the kind of violence outside the kind of cities outside, uh, maybe in the cities too, but definitely outside the cities has gotten a lot worse. It kind of depends what your appetite for risk is. I don't think that I take risks, but then probably that's not a very subjective opinion, if you know what I mean. Like, I remember being outside one IDP camp, and IDPs are international, internally displaced persons. Uh, so it's kind of people who fled Boko Haram and stuff in the Northeast. I was outside one but in the first few months I was here uh, in my Duguri. Uh, and I kind of walked away, and I was like, okay, we should come back for more interviews the next day. And then kind of a bit later, I had a change of mind and thought, now nah, we can probably wrap it up and, you know, I can hop on a plane and leave. And then the next day when I was going to go back, you know, suicide bombers came and blew themselves up uh, right where I was, basically. So that was uh, an interesting experience. Wow. So wait, let, let, let's get a bit more into the elections then. Um, 
how, how did you go about covering that? And can you just explain a bit about the situation with the elections being pushed back and how the final outcome was and how you went about covering this? Uh, I don't know. I'm still kind of tired from like covering the election. Um, <laughs> it was just, it's just a slog. I wouldn't say, but it's, you know, there's no one story I point to, apart from this story, actually, but um, yeah, quite I think it was a good piece, despite the fact that it's covering for something fairly horrific. I, uh, most of the election coverage is just staying on top of the breaking news, and if you can. I think, yeah, we were the first international news organization to get the news out about the delay because local media had reported it earlier in the day, and so we were checking with our sources, and we got enough kind of sourcing from, from various people to go ahead with the delay. And, you know, the, the official explanation for that was just that the electoral agency responsible for organizing the elections just wasn't ready. And so they needed an extra week. And even then, a week later, there were all kinds of issues with, you know, ballot papers not being delivered or polling stations opening hours and hours late. I, it's, it was kind of messy. In terms of covering it, we just had people all over the country trying to stay on top of the, you know, we had people in the Northwest. I traveled up to the president's hometown initially, but then was back in Abuja for like the delayed elections. We had people in the Northeast, in the South, all parts of the South, yeah, across the whole country, whole multimedia kind of team around the country. It's a huge country, Nigeria. So there's a lot of effort, a lot of hard work, a lot of sleepless or almost sleepless nights. People, you know, people averaging like just a handful of hours of sleep for, you know, week, weeks on end because of a delay. And so in the end was, what was the ultimate outcome of the election in the end? And, and were people confident that the outcome was the correct one and that there hadn't been any, I don't know, what do you want to call it? Funny business, I guess, in um, the election. So you know, the incumbent, Muhammadu Buhari, who's yeah, won a second term by a very large margin, the opposition are now saying that this was rigged and that the opposition and their candidate, Atiku Abu Bakr, should have won, but that there was kind of skullduggery. Anecdotally, you can say that, yeah, there were quite a number of instances of violence, of, you know, ballot boxes being stolen, you know, dotted around the country. But Buhari won by something like four million votes. I can't remember off the top of my head. And so what I keep kind of saying to people who, especially like, you know, when you speak to members of the opposition parties, you can say, yeah, well, you can point to those instances. But if you add up all those instances and say if every single one of those votes had been going to your guy instead... Would you still reach 4 million votes? Because that's a huge number. And the turnout was very low. The turnout was like 36%, which is pretty grim, really. You know, if I put it really at the very bottom of most African countries holding presidential elections. Why is that? Is it uh, not obligatory and also people have difficulty getting to the polls or what? It's not obligatory. Some people did have difficulty getting to the polls. There was also, you know, I knew people who had gone around polling station to polling station to polling station, kept being told they were at a different one and they went to like, you know, four or five, six different polling stations within their city. Because they were being told they were registered in a different district, basically. Yeah, they just being said exactly a wild goose chase. You know, my, my friend's son, he wanted to vote for the very first time and he couldn't do it. And that was kind of his experience of his very first election in Nigeria was being unable to vote because they were sent on a kind of polling station wild goose chase. And yeah, that's terrible. And so, yeah, I think, and yeah, vote, like I said, um, did I say, I can't remember now, uh, voting isn't compulsory. And, you know, V2 candidates were, they, people know them and they've been around for decades and they're not new and they might not, I would say, might not necessarily invigorate people with this kind of sense of hope or optimism of a kind of new generation of politicians. Because these guys are both holdovers from the military era, really. Or, or you know, the initial phase of, uh, democracy, which basically inherited the mantle from the military era. When when did democracy start there, roughly? I mean, I it's, it's young. Exactly. Democracy in Nigeria is 20 years old. 
because the handbell was in 1999. And before that, it had been a military Yeah, I mean, there were periods of civilian rule, but for the most part, since independence from, since Nigeria got independence from Britain, it had been a military dictatorship until 1999. So it's, it's a young democracy. And just to, just to talk a bit more about the violence, because you said there are estimates that hundreds of people died. Was most of that because of um, Boko Haram and Islamic State West Western Africa province, or was were there other types of violence uh, too? I, it was about half and half. So basically, there were two reports, and one came out from one firm, SBM, and they had a bunch of deaths, but they didn't have much for the Northeast. And then another uh, research group, security research group, uh, produced a report specifically focusing on electoral violence in the Northeast uh, because it requires like a very different, I think, kind of skill set and source set to be able to pin that down. And, you know, Islamic State and Boko Haram had said, I think, or had basically insinuated that they were going to make efforts to disrupt the elections. And so these two reports, you know, and I, I made sure to kind of check the data and make sure there was, if there was an overlap and I discounted that overlap, right? So I'm not double counting any people who died. Um, but all in all, it was about, mm-hmm. I think it was about 300 people died in, you know, Northeast Islamic insurgent related uh, violence and 300 people in other kind of election related violence in the campaign. Over just different types of tensions i mean is are there other all kinds of stuff yeah i think just the the it can be anything from just people being shot at rallies to assassinations to um, kind of read very specific regional issues i think so it really kind of runs a whole gamut sure okay and and let's uh just talk a little bit about what uh, safety is like for you there you said uh, it can be pretty dangerous in a lot of places how how do you go about staying safe and uh, how do you go about determining you know what the level of danger is uh, i think reuters to its credit is a very kind of safety conscious organization i've never felt that I've been pushed to do something gung-ho that I didn't want to do. In fact, the alternative is often I kind of sometimes feel that I should be able to go somewhere and the Reuters kind of security, Reuters kind of people like, no, let's not do that. Too risky. You know, and you're speaking to you're speaking to a lot of kind of institutional knowledge and wisdom here, right? You're speaking about bureau chiefs of experience, regional heads of experience, security managers specifically hired to assess this kind of thing. You know, all these people have a say in whether you can or can't go somewhere dangerous. We have Kevlar as well for when we need it. And, you know, flat, so flak jackets, we have helmets. I feel that the, the main risk to me in Nigeria is just like being stopped at a checkpoint by like a drunken police officer or security agent of some kind and something going wrong. You know, like something that you can't account for, like a robbery or a mugging or something. But Abuja is pretty safe all in all. And around the country, yeah, like, you know, traffic accidents can happen. You're more likely to die from a traffic accident, I feel, than anything, you know, to Hollywood. What about, uh, you had mentioned kidnappings were an issue. Kidnapping is, yes, it's very common. Very, very common. I think mostly common, by far probably more common for Nigerian people than it is for uh, foreigners. But, you, you know, every every week, I wouldn't be surprised if it's every week, at least one foreigner gets kidnapped. But again, I think that's about them living in a uh, less safe part of Nigeria very often and having a pattern that they've set up there. But for the most part, it is for money. And there are gangs, kind of professional kidnapping gangs that operate. Let's see. And now the rest of the questions I have are under a heading I have called lightning round. I feel like that's a bit of a misnomer, but I guess the the idea is for them to be a bit quicker. So I don't know. Do you think you're ready for this? Yeah, yeah. I'll try and be succinct. Okay. So when you wake up in the morning, what is the first thing you usually check? My phone. <laughs> And what what on your phone? <laughs> uh, I just look at my fucking notifications and like just go like clear them all out. I'm a big notifications like clearer outer. Sure, I mean, maybe. sure. And that's usually what WhatsApp emails that sort of thing. Uh, that's going to be like WhatsApp. It's going to be my encrypted messaging apps, which is like Signal and Wicker, and sometimes Telegram. But then people here don't really use that as much as the others. Uh, yeah, emails, Twitter, and. Uh, 
I think I turned off Facebook notifications because just Facebook freaks me out. Not the company itself, but just something about it. I sometimes find myself scrolling through it. Then I think, why the fuck am I looking at other people's lives right now? And then I close the window. And then half an hour later, I'm doing exactly the same shit. But yeah, Twitter and the messaging apps, I would say, and emails. There you go. Okay. Yeah, no, I had to uninstall the Facebook app for my phone because when it was open, when I first moved to Brazil, I'd find myself just like randomly opening it up way too much and just scrolling through it. And Well, yeah, I mean, there's something about being able to access these things when you've been in China for three and a half years when they're blocked and you're like, holy shit, I can suddenly look at Twitter and Instagram and Facebook without any bullshit. Yeah, it's pretty wild. <laughs> people don't realize how good the internet is outside China. Even in Nigeria, people complain about the speeds. So I'm like, you shut up. You don't know how good you have it. Okay. So what what would you say is like a must-read publication that you look at almost every day? Um, the Ringer. <laughs> <laughs> That's apparent. You know, there's lots of great news publications, right? But I get a lot of my news from Twitter. So it's like I have my Twitter set up so that I can get like a great article from the New York Times or The Guardian or The Washington Post or Reuters, but it just depends on, you know, what people are recommending. So I don't really look at a uh, publication's homepage that much except for The Ringer because uh, I'm a big, like, pop culture person and The Ringer uh, kind of ticks a lot of the boxes uh, for me. Less so for sports because it's very American sports focus and I don't give a fuck about baseball or basketball, but yeah. Sure. And yeah, that I guess that's... I mean, RIP Gravland. That overlaps with my next question. What publication do you read slash listen to slash watch for fun? Uh, so I don't do... I, weirdly, I'm now being interviewed for a podcast, but um, I don't do podcasts apart from Dissect, which is amazing, which breaks apart kind of modern classics like Frank Ocean's albums, Kanye West's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy or My dark beautiful twisted fantasy or my fantasy's dark beautiful twist or something <laughs> that's an incredible one because i'm like massively into music especially like hip-hop and kind of r&b ish stuff as well so yeah i'd say that podcast is, is huge otherwise it's a lot of music and uh, i do a lot of tv shows and stuff as well gotcha that was the next question any particular subject matter you read into specifically that isn't your related to your job sounds like a lot of music pop culture that sort of thing yeah music and music and pop culture sadly i'm not looking at my bookmarks a lot of them are job related i think i do a lot of job reading but even like after hours so yeah sure i books i still read a lot of books but i, I mean i i personally i read like a lot of when i really want to escape i read fantasy books because that's what i did as a kid so most of what i read is kind of an escape mechanism interesting and then next i mean you've kind of already said it is twitter important to you yeah i think uh, i probably use it a bit too much then again i've met contacts and sources through twitter <laughs> uh really good ones so i think it is important to me it's important for, to keep a pulse for me not just on what's going on in nigeria but and you do need it for your job in nigeria because a lot of official announcements come through twitter but also for following news and journalists around the world that kind of i admire and respect sure and we, if you had to choose, which is the more important function for you, do you think? Sending out your own tweets or consuming other people's? Oh, consuming other people's, definitely. Sure. I mean, I know I can tweet a lot, but it's, it's unimportant. <laughs> gotcha. And I guess we all, I, the next one was what other social media do you use and how? I think, you know, you said we've already talked about Facebook. And I mean, I know you're very lightly on Instagram. And then beyond that, it's kind of like what social media is there besides uh, Snapchat? or something like that yeah so I, I never got into snapchat too much um instagram my sister's partners often sends me uh videos of their cat over dm which i quite like i do use instagram or i haven't used it in a bit and i keep meaning to but i i upload my pictures that i'm proud of to instagram so that's i guess that's why you say lightly right because i don't really i don't like take pictures of my food and upload it but if i have an actual thing that i've shot on my camera and i like it I'll put it on. I just haven't done that for a year because I'm lazy. Sure. So the next ones are yes or no questions. So first up, Glenn Greenwald, yes or no? Yes. He's, he's yes. Yeah. I don't know the guy, obviously, but I want to have my issues with some of kind of how he comports himself, I guess, as anyone might. And so a lot of people probably do for me. I just think ultimately, is he a force of good, a force for good or not? And yes, he is. I think he Great. is. Great. Because, yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to having a running Glenn Greenwald count where, like, 100 episodes from now I can be like, we've got 51 pro Glenn Greenwald and 49 against. But this means you now need Glenn Greenwald on the show. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's totally a ploy to eventually get him to come on. 
Next one, uh, Vice Media, yes or no? No. Which is bizarre because, no? like, they're the closest thing to, I guess, what Hunter S. Thompson was doing. I would say yes, but just apparently the way they treat their staff and the kind of the pay and the support they give them, I, I've heard it's really bad. So I'm going to say they're not a force for good. Okay. And then the next ones are just, like, other media types. So... TV news, yes or no? Just TV news in general? Yeah. Sure, why not? You like it? I don't watch TV news, but I'm happy for like other... you're in favor of it. Well, I'm happy for other people to be informed, yeah. <laughs> uh, radio news, yes or no? Yeah, I think radio news is very important here as well in Nigeria. A lot of people are illiterate. It's the only way they get news, so yes. Magazines, yes or no? <laughs> Yes. I mean, I don't see what's wrong with magazines. <laughs> She's going to be like, no, it's <laughs> Satan. Maybe I need to rephrase these to, to be more whether you consume them or oh, not. Oh, you're asking if I consume um, them. Oh, is that what I thought you were just like in general? Do, do I support them or not? I'm not sure. It was kind of open-ended, but maybe I need to change it to be that. I want to wait for someone to say fuck magazines. <laughs> Yeah, and then the last one, podcast, yes or no? Oh, uh, I mean, me personally, no. You know that already, like I said earlier. Right. But for others, if that's what gets you off, sure. Dude, <laughs> can I ask a question? Do, do you do, have any suggestions for divisive yes or no questions? Oh, well, I was just going to ask you something. Do all, like, American podcasts hire the same dude to do the voice for them? The same white dude? The same white dude? Because it always sounds like the same white dude. No matter what podcast you listen to, if, it's, if there's a dude on it, it's, it sounds like the same guy. Oh, no. Am I nailing the voice? <laughs> I don't think so. But maybe that's because I know you. To me, your voice sounds different. Damn. You, Man, I'm screwing this up. You don't, don't sound like Ezra, uh, Ezra Glass or whatever they're called. Ira, Ira, <laughs> Ira Glass. Yeah. And I really appreciate that you don't, you, you really, you know, are that not in on podcasts <laughs> that you don't. No, it's Ira. Glass. I was just being coy. Uh, I was just being coy. I know his name. He's in the New York Times crossword. <laughs> I would ask him about WikiLeaks. Ooh, interesting. I think that's more divisive. Yeah, I would. I would be surprised to meet a journalist. Like I'm obvious. I mean, is it safe to say that all journalists are kind of pro Snowden? Wiki Snowden wasn't WikiLeaks though, right? Um, no, Snowden was not WikiLeaks, but uh, Assange supports Snowden. Right, and the docu- the Which stuff he leaked, like, none of it was released by WikiLeaks. I don't think so, no. Um, okay. If that's the case, because I feel like Snowden stuff, not divisive at all, like WikiLeaks definitely, I mean, the various stuff they've done. Um, so WikiLeaks, yes or no, Paul? Uh, you know, uh, uh, this. I think that they published a lot of stuff without retracted information, which I, I understand got a lot of people maybe even killed or a few people killed. I think so. I may not be remembering correctly. Plus the whole Julian Assange thing, I'm not sure I can endorse WikiLeaks. So no. Yeah. There was maybe a time early on when they'd first been released and the transparency of like diplomatic cables and stuff like that. But I don't know. It seems to have, as it goes on, it kind of is perhaps not a force for good. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? Well, I wouldn't trade places with a dead journalist. That would be a weird, a weird trade. <laughs> I, but no, you'd live their life or whatever, you know. Ah, that's boring. <laughs> so there's this fairly young journalist called Ben Taub who's actually written about Lake Chad. And he's a New Yorker and uh, he does amazing stuff. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't – I'm envious but also like admire him, you know. So I guess he is up there on my list. He writes about what? He's, he writes about a lot of like security. So he's written about Syria. He's written about uh, the Lake Chad kind of region which is where was like Boko Haram and everything he wrote about a I think a police officer in New York it was a really good story I mean he's just a very very talented journalist and he does like really great cool. long form articles and you know so it's kind of a good switch from being like a wire reporter you know trying out the whole long form thing sure yeah I've got a I'll, it's a name that rings a bell but I'll have to look him up like what is your favorite movie or book or TV or anything that's about journalists like your favorite meta Oh, so it's it's not a book by a journalist. It's about a journalist or about journalism. Right. Yeah. So it could be like the newsroom. It could be all the presidents to name like the most notable ones. It could be the movie Dick about. No, that uh, film was terrible. 
I can't believe you recommended that. That wasn't even about them. They barely were in it. You're right. You're right. They were bit players. Am I allowed to say Dispatches by Michael Hare? It's not really about him. It's about like what his experiences in Vietnam. So I guess it's not about journalism. I know people are gonna say no, that's not meta. Enough. People are gonna say scoop and shit like that. The Wire season five. No, wait. Okay, I, I misread your question. So I was gonna say dispatches. Yeah, actually, you know, there's um. Then again, Generation Kill is not so much about the journalist as it is about the marines he travels with otherwise that would have been a good one fuck you've really got me in a bind here and then the final question qualifications aside if you couldn't be a journalist what job would you do uh wait did you send this one to me i didn't think about this one i don't think i did um we're in uncharted territory fuck what job would i do it's not journalist okay uh, i have a music producer probably music producer Music producer, good answer. Thank you. Okay, cool. Well, I think that's everything. I are you you're happy with it so far? Yes. Cool. Cool. So there you have it. That was Paul Karsten, and this has been our second episode. Just some quick announcements before I wrap up. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have the time, it would be great if you could give it a good rating and leave it a positive review. You can find us on Twitter at at ForeignPod or use the hashtag hashtag ForeignPod to tweet about it. Or just tell a friend who you think might be interested in the podcast to check it out. I'll be looking to post my next episode on Sunday, June 16th, so please look for it then. Our show's music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. I'll post links for more information on that music, as well as some of the articles and other things I talked about with Paul on our Twitter, as well as on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com, and we'll also try to get it into the iTunes description. Thanks again for listening. I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. 